Let's pray together. Bless God to meet us in his word. This has been a rich morning already, Father. Thank you for worship. Thank you for a chance just to speak out praise to you. I love, Lord, the freedom that just comes upon us as we exalt your name, as we behold your glory, as we celebrate who you are. And I pray, Lord, that you'd continue that work of your spirit as we open up the scriptures. Help me to be in sync with your word, with your will, with your truth. Open our hearts up, Lord, I pray, so that we can respond and and grow and meet us now in a powerful way, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, as I was thinking about the topic for this morning, I just wanted to start off with this question, and that is, how many of you have read or seen uh, C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Okay? Any? All right, I think a number of you have. And uh, because what this, what's described in there is just perfectly a picture of what I want to talk about this morning. Remember how the Wicked Witch brought winter to the whole land of Narnia? Okay, so there was no greenery. There was no warmth. There were no blooming flowers. It was just cold and ice and snow. But then Aslan broke, if I get the story right, if I remember right, Aslan broke the witch's power and spring started to come into the land. The warmth of the sun started to shine. Little shoots of grass started to come up. Flowers started to bloom. The snow was melting and slowly spring came and spread through the entire land of Narnia. Now that's a perfect picture of what Jesus Christ does in our lives. Satan's power and our own sin has brought winter to our lives, if you want to use that analogy. So it's brought winter to our marriages. It's brought winter to our emotions. It's brought winter to our conversations. It's brought winter into our relationships. Satan's power, the power of sin, has brought winter to every part of our lives. But because Jesus Christ died on the cross, breaking the power of sin, paying for the guilt of our sin, and rising from the dead, the moment that you put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your Lord, as your heart-satisfying treasure, at that moment, spring starts to come and will spread through your life. Spring will come and melt, start to melt the sin in your marriage and melt the sin, sinful patterns in terms of your conversations. Will 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 melt the winter in your emotions and in your in your relationships. And especially it'll not especially, but the topic I want to focus on today is how it'll melt the sin in our conversational patterns, especially our pattern, our our habit of lying, and of not telling the truth, which is what Jesus talks about in the next section of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 33 to 37. So let's go ahead and turn there. Matthew 5, 33 to 37. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We'll bring one to you. Do this every Sunday because we want you to have a copy of the Bible to look on with in front of you. Matthew 5, 33 to 37. Matthew 5 is on page 810 in the Bibles that we're passing out. So we're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount section by section, verse by verse. And we're right in the middle of the section where Jesus contrasts his teaching, the truth, with other teaching that's false. And look at how he does that in Matthew 5, 33 to 37. He says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, 
You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now you can tell from the way that Jesus talks here that he's, he's contrasting his teaching with something else. He's, he's actually correcting something. Did you catch that? Obviously in verse 33, it says, Again, you've heard that it was said, verse 34, But I say to you, so he's correcting something in verse 33. What's he correcting? Okay, we've raised this question every week, and you could easily think that it's the Old Testament. Okay, but what I want to show you is it's not the Old Testament that he's correcting, but it's the way the Pharisees have distorted the Old Testament. So let's dig in a little bit more closely. Look at verse 33. In, in that verse, Jesus quotes from two verses in the Old Testament. He puts them together. First he says, you shall not swear falsely. And that's from Leviticus 19.12. Let me just read it for you. Leviticus 19.12, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Now when the Bible talks about swearing in that kind of a context, it's not talking about using like obscene language or vulgar language. That's another topic. What the Bible's talking about when it uses the word swear in this way is when you invoke God's name to persuade someone else that you're telling the truth. Okay? Like, let's say there was some emergency and you're, 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 you're trying to tell your wife, we have to leave the house. And she's saying, are you, are you joking? And you say, listen, I swear to God, we have to leave right now. Now, what would you be saying? You'd be saying, listen, hon, there is a God. He's hearing every word I say. I know that he wants me not to lie. And I'm saying in light of all that, we have to leave the house. You feel the power of that? So that's what the Old Testament's talking about. And it says, if you're going to swear by God, then tell the truth. Okay? Make sense? In the second half of verse 33, he says we should perform to the Lord what we have sworn. Deuteronomy 23:21. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Okay, so this is a little bit different. This is talking about vowing a vow to the Lord. And there's times like in Matthew 18, we aren't sure exactly the details, but in Matthew 18, Paul had taken a vow to the Lord that he would not cut his hair. We aren't sure exactly the reasons why. Luke doesn't tell us. Paul doesn't explain. But it's an Old Testament practice of making a vow to the Lord to, to do something. And so what the Old Testament says is if you're going to make a vow to the Lord to do something, then what should you do? Do it. Okay, it's very simple. So that's the Old Testament background. If you swear by God that you are telling the truth, then tell the truth. And if you vow to the Lord that you're going to do something, then do it. Okay? That's the Old Testament background. Now, the Pharisees took that teaching and they completely distorted it. And the best way to show you that is turn to Matthew chapter 23. 
This is a, a lengthy place where Jesus teaches, or he's, he's rebuking the scribes and Pharisees, and look at what we learn about what they did with this Old Testament teaching. Matthew 23, starting in verse 16. That's page 828, by, by the way, in the Bible we just passed out. Matthew 23, starting in verse 16. Look at what Jesus says to them, to the Pharisees. Y'all got that? Matthew 23, verses 16 through 19. Jesus says to the Pharisees, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. Which means if you, if you swear, I swear by the temple, well then you can lie and it's, and it's okay. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, oh, he is bound by his oath. See what the Pharisees are doing? Verse 17, you blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? Verse 18, and you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Can you see what the Pharisees are doing? It's, it's kind of strange, and I, I'm not really sure why they're doing this. The Old Testament says if you swear by God, then make sure you're telling the truth. But they spent a lot of time, for some reason, talking about whether you could swear by lesser things and not have to tell the truth. In fact, there's a, there's a book written at around this time, a, not, not, not a Bible book, but it's called the Mishnah, actually a couple, there's a little bit later, and there's a whole chapter in this book devoted to distinguishing which things, if you swear by them, oblige you to tell the truth, and which things, if you swear by them, don't oblige you to tell the truth. So can you see what, what, what a distortion is going on here? The Old Testament says if you're going to swear by God, then tell the truth. And the Pharisees are spending a lot of time trying to figure out which things you can swear by and not be obligated to tell the truth. So that's what Jesus is correcting. In Matthew 5, 33 to 37. Let's, let's go back there now. Matthew 5, 33 to 37. Page 810 in the Bibles we passed out. So there's nothing wrong with what the Old Testament said. What's wrong is how the Pharisees distorted what the Old Testament said. Okay, so that's, that's what Jesus is correcting. Not the Old Testament per se, but the Pharisees' distortion. So then what is he calling us to do? Here we are, his disciples. What does he want us to do? And there's something in this passage he's calling us to do, and there's something he's calling us not to do. Okay, what's he calling us to do? Verse 37, it's clear. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So if you're going to say simply yes or no, the point is tell the truth. Speak the truth. Always speak the truth. This is what he calls his followers to, to do. Now, what's he calling us not to do? This is a little bit more hard to figure out. Okay, because he does say in verse 34, do not take an oath at all. Okay, well, three years ago, I was on jury duty, and I needed to say, I swear to tell the whole, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God, and should I have done that or not? Okay, because Jesus says, 
do not take an oath at all. And in verse 37, he says, anything more than this yes or no comes from evil. Now, over church history, there's been some groups, like the Anabaptists, for example, which was the, 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 the Believer's Baptism group, 1700s, 1800s. The Anabaptists believed that you should never uh, invoke any kind of a vow or any kind of swearing before God because of Jesus' words here. And I love their devotion to the scriptures. I love their focus on the word of God, wanting to be faithful to what Jesus taught. But I'm not sure that they are drawing the right conclusion for two reasons. And I'm not the only one who thinks this. There's a lot of, a lot of other commentators as well. Two reasons. One is that Jesus, in Matthew 26, if you, if you read about his trial... There's a time where Jesus, um, basically under oath, he states who he is. The, the priest asks him if you could state under oath about who you are. Jesus testifies under oath in Matthew 26. That's one example. And then Paul, if you've read Paul's letters, numerous times in Paul's letters, he swears by God that what he's telling is the truth. Okay? Let's just turn to one example. Philippians 1.8. This is page 980 in the Bibles we passed out. Philippians chapter 1, verse 8, page 980. In fact, I just read another one this morning in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, I think it was. But look at this example in Philippians 1, 8. See how Paul does this. And he does this at least half a dozen times in his letters. Philippians 1, 8, page 980. He says, For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. So what what is Paul saying when he says, God is my witness? He's saying, I'm standing here telling you this, and I can testify, God would say that this is true. Okay, so that's that's what Paul is doing there. He does that a number of times in his letters. Okay, so Jesus' point, I don't think is, his point is not that it's wrong to swear in a courtroom setting. That's what Jesus does. And his point is not that it's wrong to call God as witness if you do that in order to persuade someone that you're telling the truth. That's what Paul does. So what should we not do? What we should not do is use an oath as a way of making someone think you're telling the truth when you're not. Okay? Don't use an oath as a way to make somebody think you're telling the truth when you're not. That's, that's the point. So what he's telling us to do in this passage is tell the truth And I think what he's telling us not to do is don't use any kind of an oath to have somebody think you're telling the truth when you're not. So so we can summarize what Jesus is saying here is he wants us to tell the truth. Right? Simple. Doesn't want us to lie. Okay? Very, very straightforward. He wants us to tell the truth. Now, this is not as easy as you might think it is. I try to think of some scenarios where it's like, oh, that's right. Let's say, for example, you're feeling financial pressure, not paying your bills, very difficult time financially for you. And there you are, and you're filling out your IRS tax forms. And here's a point where you could fudge the numbers, and they'd never know. Fudging the numbers in that case would be lying. Right? It's just be lying. Or, let's say you're, you're meeting in your DNA group with your guys, and, uh, and you're sharing about a hunting trip you just took where you bagged a four-point buck, okay? But somehow in the telling of the story, that four-point buck becomes an eight-point buck, or 12-point buck, okay? I don't know how many points do bucks have. I don't know. Anyway, so, so that, that, those extra four points, 
That's lying, right? So exaggerating that kind of thing can be lying. Um, let's say that there's a drama group, maybe with with, with a, a community association, and you really want Johnny to get into it, your, your little Johnny. It'd be really helpful for little Johnny to get into this drama group. And so you get the application, and you're all excited, and you're filling it out, and all of a sudden, the application says that Johnny must be 12 years old to be in the drama group, and he just turned 11 two weeks ago. Okay? Ah, nobody would know. Be good for Johnny. So to check, yes, he's 12 years old. That, that would not be telling the truth. Okay? Another example. If you're applying for a job that you really want and need, and as you write up your, your resume, your, your accounting degree, your accounting major, suddenly becomes maybe a double major of accounting and marketing. Wasn't there some, some CEO who recently had a problem with that? Okay. So if, you're, if your accounting major degree suddenly becomes a double major of accounting and marketing, I mean, I took a marketing class. I must have. You know, okay. Surely that's a major. Okay, well, padding the resume in that way, that's not telling the truth. Okay, and so you can just think. So think of situations where you are tempted, okay, to tell the truth. In June, Jan and I are going to an Acts 29 pastors conference, and one of the questions that oftentimes comes up in conversation: So, what are you guys running running on Sundays now? Like, how many people you have coming on Sundays? And it's very easy in those settings to to like round up, you know, right? Because, you know, there's so much, you know, I don't know, prestige or whatever is, is caught up in how many people are there. So that's an area where over the years I've had to think now, you know, I'm going to tell the truth or I'm even just going to maybe err on the side of it just for the sake of my heart. But again, that's something I can be tempted in. So we've all got them. I mean, exaggerating stories is one that I can easily do. All right. So that's the kind of thing Jesus is calling us to not do. He's calling us to tell the truth in those situations. So are we in touch with the fact that we're all tempted to lie at times? Okay. I hope I could give you some more stories if you need some more. All right. So we are all tempted to lie. So here's the question. How can we overcome lying then? How do we change that? Because you could just walk away from this passage and just think, okay, I need to start telling the truth. And so I'm gonna, just going to start telling the truth. But that, that's missing a crucial dynamic that Jesus wants us to get. He doesn't give it to us in this passage, but he gives it to us in other passages. So how can we overcome lying? Well, to overcome lying, remember where Jesus says lying comes from? Where, where, do, where does the, the abundance of the mouth come from? Remember? Matthew 12, 34. Let's turn there. Matthew 12, 34. Where do lying words come from? Not the situation, but somewhere else. Matthew 12, 34. Look at what Jesus says. That's page 817 in the Bibles we passed out. Matthew 12, 34. This would be a great passage, by the way, to memorize. I've been working on this one. Matthew 12, 34. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, and he says, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of his heart, the mouth speaks. So what comes out of the mouth has its origins in the heart. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus mentions that deceit and slander, which are two forms of lying, come from the heart. Matthew chapter 7. So the problem is not the circumstances. The problem is not, you know, you, you don't solve this by gritting your teeth because lying is a matter of the heart. There's something amiss in my heart when I want to exaggerate about how many people are here on a Sunday morning. There's something amiss inside me. 
And when you lie about Johnny being 12, there's something amiss in your heart or about your resume or about how many points the buck had or whatever it might be. There's something amiss in our hearts. So when we lie, what's the evil in our hearts? I mean, one way of thinking about it is what, what, what motivates lying? Well, all that motivates lying is you're just trying to avoid some pain and gain some pleasure, right? That's all. So the reason you lie about your your tax numbers is because you want to avoid the pain of paying more taxes, right? Or the reason that you would lie about how many points the buck had is because you want the pleasure of having guys be like, whoa! And the reason you would lie about Johnny you know, being 12 years old is because you want the pleasure, the benefit, the, all the growth that would come through him being in this drama group. Or the reason that you would lie about, about the... Uh, the double major is because of the, all the benefits that come from the job. So, I mean, what's wrong with seeking pleasure and avoiding pain? What's wrong with that? Well, the problem is how we're going about getting pleasure and avoiding pain. That's the problem. How are we seeking pleasure in that situation? And how are we seeking to avoid pain? Because all through this book, God tells us how to seek pleasure and how to avoid pain. And there's lots of verses I could point to. Let me show you one. Psalm 8411. This is such a powerful text. How should we, how does God invite us to seek pleasure and avoid pain? Psalm 8411. That's page 493 in the Bibles we passed out. Psalm 8411. It's an astonishing statement. Psalm 8411. For the Lord God is a sun shining springtime upon you, right, in the winter, and a shield protecting you. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold. Let me read that again. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly? Now, walking uprightly does not mean being perfect. Okay? Nobody in the Old Testament was perfect. Nobody in the New Testament is perfect. Walking uprightly, to bring it into the, into the New Testament context now that the Messiah has come, walking uprightly means trusting Jesus Christ as my Savior, forgiving my sins. As my Lord, he guides me in terms of how to live. And I trust him as my heart-satisfying treasure. Knowing him, beholding him, worshiping him, fills my heart, satisfies my heart. So trusting him as Lord, Savior, and treasure. And then when you're trusting him in that way, your life will start to reflect upright walking, upright living, including increasing in telling the truth. Okay? So here's what God is saying in Psalm 8411. He's saying, trust me. Mercy Hill Church, trust me. If you walk uprightly, including telling the truth, trust me in this, if you'll walk uprightly, telling the truth, I will bring you the greatest good and spare you the worst pain. If you trust me, trust me, if you tell the truth, if you will tell the truth in the situations that you're in, no good thing will I withhold from those who walk uprightly. If you tell the truth, I will bring you the greatest good and spare you the worst pain. Now you might think, well, no, wait a minute. How's he going to do that? Right? 
I mean, if I tell the truth, I'm going to pay more taxes. Okay? I'm not going to impress the guys as much with my story. Johnny won't get into the drama group, and I may not get the job. All right? So how will telling the truth get me the greatest good? Feel that question? Now, if that's what's in your heart, there's something terribly amiss. There's nothing terribly wrong in your heart if, if that's what you're thinking. Because that shows the root issue. The problem with that is that your greatest good is not having more money. Your greatest good is not impressing the guys with your story. It's not even getting Johnny into the drama group with all the good that that would mean. And it's not getting the job from Genesis to Revelation, what we read in this book is that your greatest good is knowing God in the person of Jesus Christ. He is our greatest good. And when you, through faith in Christ, taste His glory, and when you feel His love, and when you drink the living water of the Holy Spirit, and when you experience his presence, when that happens, you will know and realize that his presence is infinitely, and I don't, that, that's, that's an understatement, if anything. His love, his glory, his presence, who God is in the person of Jesus Christ, is infinitely more satisfying than anything else. That's just the truth. And so what's happening, if, if we're saying, well, how will telling the truth get me the greatest good because I'm not going to get the money and I'm not going to be able to tell the story and Johnny won't get into the drama club and I may not get the job, what that shows is that the root issue behind lying is this. When I am tempted to exaggerate how many people are here on a Sunday morning with other pastors, at that moment, here's what's happening in my heart. I am not trusting Jesus as my heart's satisfying treasure. I'm trusting something else as my heart's satisfying treasure. Do you agree with that? I mean, think of what's happening in your heart when you are checking the box that says Johnny is 12. Or when you embellish the resume. Or when you exaggerate the story. Or when you fudge on the IRS numbers. At that moment in your heart, you are not trusting Jesus Christ as your heart's satisfying treasure. At that moment, you've turned away from Jesus Christ and you're trusting, impressing the guys. Getting Johnny into this thing, I think it would be a good idea, whatever it might be. That's the root problem. That is the root problem. Because see, what happens when you trust Jesus Christ as your heart-satisfying treasure, not just words, not just cliche, but your feeling in your heart, you are my God, you are my good, you are my joy, knowing you as my life, and then when you hear him say that if we walk uprightly, he's going to bring us every good in him and whatever other good would be good for us, then in that case, you'd rather tell the truth and pay more taxes, right? Because I just want more of you. You'd rather have the story not be quite as exciting and bring glory to God that he lets you go on the hunting trip and just, yeah, it was a four-point buck. It was great. And because you'll have more of God's nearness, more of his love poured into your heart, more heart-satisfying experience with him as you're telling the truth. You'd rather tell the truth 
even if it means not having Johnny get into the drama, because with all the good that would have come from Johnny being in the drama group, God's favor will be upon your family. God's love will be poured into your heart. God will take care of Johnny. God will do even more, in even better way than what you were hoping to do. And, and who knows, maybe you could just ask for an exception and they'd let Johnny in anyway. But if, even if not, okay, the Lord will take care of it. And when you taste Jesus as your heart's satisfying treasure, you'd rather tell the truth and not get the job. Because you know that even in that heartbreak maybe, disappointment maybe, he will meet you. And there is no good thing, no good thing that he will withhold from those who walk uprightly. Now, if there's no good thing that he withholds from those who walk uprightly, how much good are you going to miss by walking uprightly and telling the truth? None. The way to flip the statement around is every good thing, every good thing will be given. And of course, what he wants us especially to focus on there is the goodness of of walking closely with him and experiencing his presence in our lives. So, what's the root cause of lying? When I'm tempted to lie, or when I am lying, at that moment, I am not trusting Jesus Christ as my heart-satisfying treasure. At that moment, I'm trusting something else to be my heart-satisfying treasure. So, how do we overcome lying? It's not easy. Okay, It's not just as easy as, like, well, just tell the truth. Just decide to tell the truth. There's a heart-root issue that has to be conquered here. Sin is strong. Unbelief is strong. I speak from experience, and you know as well. Sin and unbelief are strong in our hearts. We need a supernatural change in our hearts if we are going to once again see Jesus as our heart-satisfying treasure and other things as not. We need a supernatural change in our hearts. So how do we do that? Okay? Here's what I think the scripture teaches us. Let me just give you three steps. First, turn to God as you are, poor in spirit. This goes right back to the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in heart, okay? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So you, you turn to God, you turn to Jesus Christ just as you are. Here's what I would encourage you to do. And you say, Help me. Right now, I am trusting money as my all-satisfying treasure. Right now, I'm trusting getting Johnny into the drama group as my all-satisfying treasure, or whatever it might be in your case. So Jesus, I come to you as I am, poor in spirit. I have no righteousness to recommend me to you. I have nothing of goodness to recommend me to you. Here I am. And you said, blessed are the poor in spirit, so I am, and here I am before you. Would you forgive me through the cross? Would you meet me here? And I guarantee you, because of Jesus' death on the cross, if you're coming to him from the heart, confessing your unbelief, confessing your sin, asking him to forgive you, he will totally forgive you. This is the beauty. You don't need to go tell the truth ten times first before you can come back to him and say, forgive me for that one lie. You just come to him exactly as you are. All right? Help me. Forgive me. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. And he will forgive you every time. Second step, then. Ask Jesus Christ to change your heart. Ask him. Sin's powerful. Unbelief is powerful. Temptations to lie are powerful. Other things telling us that they are our all-satisfying treasure, that's very powerful. 
But God is more powerful. And He can pour the Holy Spirit out upon you and so change your heart by His supernatural work that you feel your heart changing. It is the most, maybe not the most, it's a really exhilarating thing. Okay, when you feel the Holy Spirit changing your heart, so all of a sudden it's like, I'm not feeling like money is my all-satisfying treasure anymore. I'm not feeling like that job would be. I'm once again seeing you, Jesus Christ. You are my joy. I'm feeling that. I'm loving that. I'm longing for that. I'm free. I'm whole. And so the second step is to pray and to ask, increase the heart-changing work of your Holy Spirit in me. Because listen, you can't change your heart to do that. You can't grit your teeth and will yourself to stop trusting those things as your treasure. That takes a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, which He will pour out upon you every time you come to Him from the heart and say, Help me. He will pour that out upon you. So first, what's first? Do we, do we tell the truth ten times so we can get a hearing from God first? No. First, we come to Him as we are, poor in spirit. I'm a liar. I'm not trusting you. I've been sucked into sin again. Forgive me, Lord Jesus. And he smiles and he forgives. And then we say, second, change my heart. Change my heart. I need the power of the Holy Spirit. What's impossible for people, Luke 18, 24, I think it is, is possible for God. So change my heart. And then third, how does the Holy Spirit work? The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Okay? Faith in Jesus as our all-satisfying treasure comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. So you've got to get the Word in here. You've got to get the Word in here. The Word's like the bazooka. Okay? Okay? And you can destroy those temptations. Okay? But if, you, if you're just praying, change me, change me, change me, part your Spirit upon me, part your Spirit upon me, part your Spirit upon me, that's good. But the means the Spirit uses is the Word. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And so, here's an example. Recently, I've been using Exodus 15.11 to just stir my heart when my affections for Christ are dull or when I'm being drawn to other things as my treasure. Exodus 15.1. This is a song that was sung after God had uh, delivered Israel from Egypt. After he had parted the Red Sea, they went across on dry land. The Egyptian soldiers came back after them. God had the Red Sea come back upon them, destroying all the Egyptian soldiers. Israel is safe. They are free. The soldiers are gone. The promised land awaits them. And here's what is said in one of these verses. Exodus 15, 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. Now, I've been praying over that verse recently. Who is like you? Nothing. No one. You alone are God. Who is like you? You are majestic in holiness. Who you are, the perfections of your being, sets you infinitely above everything else that is. You are majestic. Help me now to see that, to feel that, because you can say those words and just nothing's happening here, right? Oh, it's easy to do that. You can say those words just like, just nothing, except for just your heart beating. That's the point I'm making, right? You're just not feeling it. So you, you, you read the verse. 
You pray, say, Lord, open my eyes to behold the wonder of who you are. Then you think deeply about the verse and you pray some more. Maybe you bring in a brother from your DNA group and say, would you pray with me? I need to confess. I'm tempted to lie. Would you pray with me about this? Because bringing fellowship in, maybe it'd be your wife or your husband or maybe it's your kids, but bring some fellowship together because as you fight the fight of faith through prayer in the scriptures, Maybe with some brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, something amazing will happen. I, I guarantee it. Bible promises. You will, in time, feel the Holy Spirit supernaturally changing your heart. And all of a sudden, something that maybe you haven't felt for a while, you love Jesus. You see Jesus Christ You are amazing. You are glorious. If I could have you, you are all I need forever. To behold you is all I want. See, you can't make yourself experience that, but you can pray, you can open up the scriptures, you can fight, you can confess, you can humble yourself, and as you do that, you will experience a supernatural work of the Spirit changing your heart. And when that happens... When Jesus is your highest treasure, when you're feeling his glory, beholding his majesty, experiencing his very love poured into your heart, you'll put down the right numbers on the tax form. You will tell your brothers the truth about the four-point buck. You will be honest about Johnny's age. Maybe you'll ask them if he can get in any way, but you'll be honest about it. And you'll tell the truth in your resume. Because Jesus is your all-satisfying treasure. Your heart's been changed. And all you want is more of him. And he says, no good thing will I withhold from those who walk uprightly. So here's my challenge to you. What are areas you're tempted to lie in? Ponder them. We, We are all tempted to lie in some areas. We'd never do that lie, but then, oh, this is a lie? Okay, yes it is. All right. So we're all tempted to lie in different areas. And my encouragement to you isn't just leave here and say, okay, I I should tell the truth. That's missing the point. Because you can start telling the truth and have your heart be just as sinful as when you weren't telling the truth if you don't change your heart, right? Lies are a beautiful diagnostic tool to see the truth of what's happening in your heart towards the Lord Jesus. So use it that way. And then come poor in spirit. Confess it. He'll forgive you. Ask him for powerful work of your Holy Spirit earnestly ask him and then open up the sword of the spirit and let him destroy that temptation and let him reveal to you afresh who Jesus Christ is and your heart will be changed and then you will want to tell the truth so no time for questions this morning but if you've got them email me and uh, or you just come afterwards if you want to but let's stand I want to pray this over us um, I think some of us I don't know this I'm just saying this because of the size of the group that's here, but some of you have a real problem with lying. Okay? And here's the good news. Jesus Christ, by his power, will bring spring to that area of winter in your life. Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will change your heart. So right now, come to him. Start the process. Pray. Ask him to work. And I just want to pray this over us. Father, I pray for each of us here. If there's an area right now, or, or even now still, we're blind to an area where we're tempted to lie or where we have a pattern of lying, would you show that to us right now, I pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit? Show us right now, Lord, I pray. 
And we praise you, Lord Jesus, that you paid the penalty on the cross for our lies. Thank you. Forgive us, Lord, for how we can turn and think other things are are greater than you. Thinking that other things are more satisfying than you. Forgive us, Lord. We repent before you right now. Wash us. Cleanse us. And then, Lord, we need our hearts changed. Create in in us clean hearts, O God. Renew a right spirit within us. We need your supernatural work by the Holy Spirit. We praise you, Father, that through Jesus' death, this heart-changing work of the Spirit has been purchased for us. It's ours. You've promised this heart-changing work to us. And so, Lord, I pray, we pray together, would you change our hearts? Lord, those here who just aren't feeling anything towards you right now, you can change our hearts. You can pour out your Spirit upon us. So, Lord, do that, we pray. We admit we cannot change our own hearts, but you can supernaturally change us. So do that, Lord. And I pray that you would use Exodus 15:11, use other relevant scriptures that we know that might be more more meaningful to us in light of our situation that we're in. But Lord, unleash the power of your word to reveal your love to us, to reveal your glory to us, your majesty to us, to crush the power of temptation, to crush the power of sin, so that we would feel in our hearts your spirit making Jesus real, satisfied in his love, joyful in his glory, worshipful in his presence. Lord, come and do this, I pray. And then we would speak the truth because you're our prize, you're our treasure. So I pray, Father, for your power to be upon us. I pray that that this week we would have the joy of seeing truth-telling increasing in each of our lives for the glory of your name. So thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.